This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by Half Day. If you played in the Stinger, our annual member guest, you may remember the Half Day CBD closest to the pin hickory challenge. Now through the link in our show notes, you can visit their full line of hemp-derived CBD products and with the use of the promo code NEWCLUB15, you'll receive an additional 15% off your first order. I'll be back a little later in the show to share my personal experiences with Half Day. And if you're curious about the benefits of CBD for yourself, I encourage you guys to check them out. PJ Malik, welcome back to The Bag Drop. Matt Considine, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. It's that uh, glorious time of year. The birds aren't chirping because it's not the spring. Uh, but it's master's time, which means we get a chat with you, sir. I know it's great. It's, I mean, we've talked about the masters twice this year so far, so I can't, the nice thing is, is that we're going to be able to do it again in five months, hopefully. So super season though, I think. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm super excited. Season. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for, for coming back on for those that haven't heard your previous pods. I should probably mention the, uh, uh, the ones we've done before. So, you know, you have um, for the last few years been a statistician and researcher, just looking up all kinds of history on the masters. And uh, a lot of it I found of fascinating interest. And so we've, we've added it here to the pod, but if, if anyone is interested in hearing more of an oral history, I would call it uh, of, of the masters and some of the most uh, impactful and interesting uh, events that uh, have happened. Um, PJ did a great job for us last year doing, I think we broke it into two, two parts. Uh, part one kind of takes us, I think into like the eighties and then, um, part two brought us up to present day, but, uh, it's just really fascinating stories and insights on, you know, the winners of, of those, um, of those previous masters. Now, in 2020, you and I got started. All right, what do we talk about that's a little bit different than you know focusing on those winners and uh, and their stories? And a lot of near misses started to come up. So you went back to the uh, the archives and started thinking through some of your favorite masters near misses. Um, and you you I don't know what you have prepared for us, but uh, it sounds like you have one from every decade going back to where where did we cut it off the 60s. Uh, we started in the 60s, yeah, and then we just went to present day in the 2010s. So that's uh, – well, I guess we're in a new decade with the 20s, but tried to get it to as near as possible, I felt like. Great, great. And I, this is what I did when you sent last year's list. And for anybody who's got downtime uh, leading into the Masters, you go jump on YouTube. If, if one of these stories actually piques your interest and you're like, oh, that sounds I'd, – I'd like to you know, watch that live or not live, but watch it. Uh, the recording of them. I, that's one of my favorite golf geekiest things to do is sit down in front of YouTube for a couple hours and watch the Sunday masters. Cause they're all there. You know, you can go back and watch everything. I think till like, uh, well, they started in the sixties, I guess with, uh, with Arnold, but uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to go, go watch. And it, it really kind of connects you to the whole, the whole mass uh, masters history. And, uh, and so that's, why don't we just dive in where, what year are you getting us started? So we're going to start in 1968, and uh, a lot of people may know, know this story. If you're a casual golf fan, you probably don't. Um, but the winner of that year was Bob Golby, and not a not a huge name in the history of golf, obviously a Masters champion, but I think more so the storyline that year, that week, was uh, was 
a guy by the name of Roberto Di Vincenzo. And Roberto, an Argentinian, he was uh, the reigning British Open champion in 1967 at Royal Liverpool. And, um, you know, going into that Masters Sunday, Di Vincenzo was two shots back of uh, Gary Player. And there were five players actually tied for second, uh, one shot back, including Bob Golby and future Masters champion Raymond Floyd. But Roberto, he gets off to a hot start. Uh, he ends up shooting 65 for the day, uh, seven under par, gets to 11 under, and essentially ties Bob Golby, who's ahead of him in the clubhouse at 11 under par. And back then in the day, uh, the Masters was an 18-hole playoff. It was settled over 18 holes on Monday, much like the U.S. Open used to be. And when Roberto goes to the old table that where all the uh, competitors signed their cards, they didn't have a hut or they didn't sign their cards uh, in a room in the clubhouse like they do now. They used to sign it just right next to the green at a little scoring table, uh, much like a little patio set. And uh, there, were, you know, there was a rules official there, and then Roberto DiVincenzo and his playing partner Tommy Aaron. And uh, obviously in golf, you know, Tommy and Roberto exchanged scorecards at the first hole. And, you know, they, that's how you keep score. You keep your playing competitor's score. And DiVincenzo, throughout the day, is just making birdies all throughout the golf course. Um, and what is really kind of depressing and honestly hard to talk about uh, – all right, so Roberto and his playing partner, Tommy Aaron, are sitting at the scores table uh, off to the side of the 18th green, kind of off the back. And Roberto quickly signs his scorecard, kind of glances through it, gives it to the rules official. And uh, as he's going through Roberto's card, he kind of looks at Roberto and goes, Roberto, what did you make on 17? And quick backstory, Roberto had hit it, his approach shot to about two feet on 17, to take the lead, get to 12 under, and have a one-shot lead over Bob Goldie. Uh, he ends up going to 18 and makes bogey. So now Roberto's tied. He's going into a playoff on Monday, you know, pretty ticked off at himself. And uh, so that's kind of why he just glanced through his card. He just went through it hurriedly and was like, okay, I'm done. Like, you know, get me out of here, and I need to prepare for tomorrow. And the rules official kind of looks at me and goes, you know, I thought you made three. And Roberto goes, well, I did make three. And the scores, the score kind of looks at him and goes, well, you signed for four. You signed for par. And Tommy Aaron, his blood rushed from his face because he knew exactly what he did, what the mistake he did. Because essentially, you know, it, Tommy Aaron was the one who wrote Roberto's score in his card. Now, the responsibility falls on the player who made the score. I mean, it's Roberto's fault at the end of the day. He needs to thoroughly check his card and make sure that all the scores are correct. But, you know, Aaron made the blunder. And, you know, today they have so many rules that guard players against that. You'll never see that happen again in the history of golf because you're allowed to sign and then the score looks over and then says, hey, you, you actually made a mistake on, you know, hole number seven. And as long as you don't leave the scores area – uh, you know, you can, you can re recheck your card a million times. They have many rules that, you know, that'll never happen again. But back then, once you signed your card and turned it in, it was done. You couldn't make any changes to it. That was it. And so once Roberto signed his card and gave it to the rules official, his round was over and whatever he signed for, 
that's what he signed for. And so, you know, very regrettably and just, you know, a terrible end to a Masters, but Roberto ends up losing by a shot to Bob Golby. And it's got a very interesting history because Bob Golby, I mean, he got, he got a lot of hate mail uh, letters after that week. Um, A lot of people saying that he was a terrible American and um, demanding him to give the jacket back. It doesn't belong to you. Um, His, and not just weeks after this was years something that Bob Goldie's lived with his entire life has been, you know, people have said that you didn't really win the masters. You won because somebody, somebody, you didn't beat anybody. He, he made a mistake on a scorecard. That's why he won. You should have been in the playoff. And DiVincenzo, you know, I mean, that day, I mean, he shot, I mean, he signed for 66, he shot 65. Hmm. Goldie shot 66 that day. Um, You know, he birdied 13 and 14 and then he eagled 15. I mean, he, he, played that key stretch in the back nine, the second nine, excuse me, uh, and four under par. And I mean, it, you know, I, I don't know if you can say that Bob Golby lost the, or, you know, not lost it, that he should have lost the golf tournament by any means. He, you know, he, he should have rightly so been in that playoff and, and Hey, it's not his fault that he, you know, didn't sign the card or signed the card. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't his responsibility. He wasn't in the group. I mean, he had nothing to do with it. He was standing on the putting green waiting for DiVincenzo to, to finish to see what he ended up at. So, I mean, you know, for if, people to blame Bob Golby is, is just absurd. I know there's a bunch of changes to, you know, rules that now protect players. And I think even on amateur level, it still is the same. You can kind of stay within the scorers area and they'll sort it out. But at this time, was it, um, if you signed for a higher score, which DiVincenzo did, um, that's just your score, right? So he ended up what finishing second, second place money, all that. Um, yes. If he signs for a lower score, he's disqualified, right? Yes. Yeah. And to this day, it's the same rule. If you, you know, if I shoot 68 and I sign for 69, I keep the 69. But if I shot 68 and I sign for 67, then I'm disqualified. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, man, it's quite, quite a way to go down uh, after putting in all the work. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Mr. Golby, I, I, you know, it's funny. You look at the list of, of Masters winners, at least myself. I don't think of DiVincenzo, but I'm sure a lot of people will now. <laughs> They're listening. Um, that's a good one. Anything else on 68 before we move on? Uh, just like a fun fact, I mean, Bob Golby is the uncle of Jay Haas, PGA Tour player, and uh-huh. uh, the great uncle of Billy Haas, obviously Jay Haas' son. So he's got two, he's got a nephew and a uh, great nephew that, you know, made it to the PGA Tour as well. So the Masters was always a big deal in the Haas family because, you know, Jay's uncle was the Masters champion in 1968. Big Billy Haas. He's got a grandson that was a FedEx Cup champion. Incredible. <laughs> um, that's cool. All right, so who's your pick for the 70s? So 1979 is one of maybe the saddest Masters of all time. Uh, honestly, it's, it's extremely depressing to watch. Nothing YouTube. gets you pumped up um, for the Masters, like talking about the saddest Masters of all time. Let's dive in. But, I mean, hey, when you think about Masters, you think about collapses. And, I mean, this one is – people talk about 96 and Greg Norman, and we'll get there. But I think this one might have been just as bad as Greg's. Um, man by the Floridian, a man by the name of uh, Ed Sneed, three-time PGA Tour winner at this point, uh, going into 
1979 Masters. Uh, not really on anybody's you know list of favorites going into that week, uh, but finds himself after 54 holes with a five-shot lead uh, over Fuzzy Zeller and Tom Watson. And Fuzzy Zeller, to note, this is his first Masters that he's playing in. Uh, he's Masters rookie. And, you know, when we talk about the Masters, we talk about Augusta National, we, we always try to tend to pick players that, you know, have great pedigrees on the golf course and in the tournament and, you know, past champions or guys that are, you know, very close to winning every year, always up on the first page of the leaderboard. So just because, you know, it's the only major championship that we go back to the same course every single year. And the old adage is you don't, you don't read the greens at Augusta, you learn the greens at Augusta. And so I think that, you know, always adds into, you know, even though Tiger Woods is 45, even though Phil Mickelson's 50, those guys will still always be favorites because they're, you know, five and three time winners of the tournament respectively. And they know the golf course like the back of their hands. So when we're going to Augusta, you never really think of a rookie to be able to, you know, pull it out. I mean, Jordan Spieth is, you know, most recently, he's the closest to do it in 2014 when he was 20 years old. And then obviously he won it the next year in 2015. But so anyway, just to keep in mind, Fuzzy Zeller was a Masters rookie that year in 79. And he's playing in the second to last pairing with Tom Watson. Well, Ed goes out and that final final day uh, was very windy. The conditions just completely were completely just switched on him the entire throughout the week was the golf course wasn't playing very firm and fast and Sunday just the whole idea of the golf course weather everything just completely flipped on them and uh, the greens got firmer faster the course was running and and scores were much higher that day and uh, so Snead kind of he stumbles a little bit on the front nine and then kind of gets his footing back and he's got a three-shot lead with three holes to play uh, standing on the 16th tee and you know, Snead had just made birdie on 15 to go to 11 under par and, uh, you know, three-shot lead over Tom Watson. And Snead says that he, you know, he let him – he definitely let himself, you know, kind of get ahead of himself, stand on the 16th tee, started thinking about, you know, slipping on the green jacket. And, and to keep in mind, Snead was an Ohio State alum, uh, was best friends with Tom Weiskopf, who – was on the Ohio State team with him at that time. And, and Weisskopf was a four-time runner-up at, at the Masters. And his last second-place finish coming in 1975 to Jack Nicholas. And so Snead kind of had that in the back of his mind that, you know, I want to do this for my best friend. I want to do this for my buddy who was so close here so many years and, and just could never pull it out. And I think he felt like, it, you know, it'd be his win as much as Tom's. And so he gets up on 16 and the pin's on the – you know, kind of just on that front left, right over the bunker, like it is every Sunday that we're accustomed to seeing. And, and Snead kind of hits a indifferent tee shot to about 50 feet, kind of, you know, short, right. Just, and that putt is, it breaks three different ways and it, it goes up a ridge and then it comes down and then back up at the cup and it's back up the hill a little bit. I mean, it's just, it's a brutal putt and he leaves it short. He misses the comebacker. And so now his leads to two. <clears throat> Well, in the group ahead of him, uh, Fuzzy Zeller, who was at seven under, he birdies 17 to get to eight under and tie Tom Watson. So as that group's walking to the 18th tee, Snead now has a two-shot lead over Watson and Zeller. And so the 17th hole has had a lot of changes 
over the last 40 years and 41 years. And the, the hole was much shorter. It was a driver wedge back then. Uh, you could still see Ike's tree about a 200 yards off the tee box on the left side of the fairway. So that always, you know, kind of made uh, the hole a little bit, a little more scenic. You know, you had to hit more of a tight draw instead of today where you can just, you can hit a cut or whatever you feel like. And uh, it was straight downwind that day and, and Snead got up and just pounded a tee shot. He had 82 yards, just a little sand wedge uh, to the front right pin location on 17. And Snead just hit a very indifferent wedge shot. Just was never really comfortable with the number. Uh, kind of pulls it long and left. And he chips it to about eight feet just past the pin and he misses it for par. And so now Snead's walking to the 18th tee and he's got a one shot lead with one hole to play to win the tournament that he's always dreamt of winning. And Zeller and Watson, they both par 18. So they're in at eight under and Sneed standing on the tee box on 18 pipes it down the middle. Uh, his, if you watch the replay, his golf swing was unbelievable. It was perfect and not no deficiencies. I mean, the swing looks like it should be able to withstand any type of pressure. And um, he's in the fairway. He hits a seven iron that just he completely flames it to the right. And the ball ends up just short of the right side bunker. It doesn't even get to the uh, right green side bunker. And the pin that day was obviously the Sunday pin, um, the traditional Sunday pin, the front left, just over the slope. And, and Snead hits about a six-footer just below the hole. Um, just kind of like on the opposite side of uh, the Mickelson putt. And Sneed's taking forever to read uh, to read his par putt to win the, to win the Masters. And um, his playing partner, Craig Stadler, was he was four over that day. He was completely out of it. So he was playing as quickly as possible to kind of get out of Sneed's way. And so he finishes in front of Sneed. And, and so now it's just – you know, kind of the broadcast is dragging on following Snead, you know, stalking his putt, looking at it from different angles. And you just feel like, God, like this guy's got to make it. I mean, he's, he's got to stop the bleeding somehow he's due. And he gets up, it's straight uphill, just, you know, a ball right to left. And as soon as he hits it, you knew that he just didn't give it enough gas. And the thing breaks off at the last second and ends up right next to the hole. And so, you know, the crowd is moaning and the announcers can't believe it. And it's tough to watch. And so this actually, so 1979 was the first year that they, uh, that the Masters decided to not have an 18-hole playoff. They decided to choose a sudden death playoff to decide their winner. And so they went to the 10th hole and Tom Watson, Fuzzy Zeller, and Ed Sneed or standing on the 10th tee for the first playoff hole. And you can kind of see the look on Watson and Zeller's face. Like they can't believe that, <laughs> that they're on the 10th tee right now playing in a playoff. I mean, you know, 30 minutes ago, they were both trying to beat each other for second place. They weren't even thinking about winning the golf tournament. And now all of a sudden they're on the 10th tee with, you know, Ed Snead, who looks like he's, you know, he looks like a white ghost because he just can't believe what he did. And, they both hit perfect – or all three of them hit perfect tee shots down the middle of the fairway. And uh, Ed Snead is first to play. He hits a seven iron to about 10 feet. 
Uh, Fuzzy Zeller, or sorry, Tom Watson is second to play. He hits an eight iron to about eight feet, and Zeller's last to play, he hits a nine iron to about 12 feet. So Zeller's first to putt, he misses. Sneed runs his birdie putt uh, by about a foot, taps him for par, and then Watson leaves his birdie putt to win the Masters short. So now all three got to go to 11 and do the same thing all over again. They all hit the fairway again. Um, Sneed blows his second shot into the back left bunker on 11. Um, Watson trying to hit a high draw into the front left pin location, or kind of more of the back front left pin location on 11 over the water. He hits a high draw to about 15 feet. And Fuzzy last to play. It's an incredible approach shot to six feet just below the hole. Um, and so now you're kind of thinking, all right, this is, you know, Ed's got no chance. It, he's choked it away. And it's, it's Zeller's and Watson's to win now. And the broadcast shows that Sneed is on the downslope of the bunker. Um, he's got a lot of green to work with, but that's about the only thing that is helping him. And uh, the bunker is just so shallow. It's such an odd angle because he's level with the green. And those are always the hardest bunker shots to hit. When you're below the surface of the green and you're hitting it up, hitting uphill, it's pretty simple because you know that you can, you know, get the ball, you can get the club underneath the ball and air it up. When the ball, when it, sorry, when the bunker is level with the green, it's much harder. You don't know how, sometimes you get scared of hitting too close to the ball or how the ball's sitting up in the sand. Um, and, you know, by the way, he's staring right back at water. So if he hits it, if he hits it a little thin, gives it a little too much gas, it's going to run off the front of the green and his masters is going to be over because he's going to be, he's going to end up in the pond there on 11. And so Sneed chunks it out and the ball just keeps releasing all the way to the cup, catches the left lip, spins out and ends up a foot behind the hole. And you can just see, and Ed Sneed has talked about it since that that one out of all the shots he hit those last five holes, that was the one that killed him. You know, and he, you can, on the broadcast, he raises his hands up like he's going to make it. And then his whole body just slumps down and his shoulders just collapse. And he just looks like the wind was just punched out of him. And he just looks so dejected. I mean, he just cannot believe you can tell. And he says to this day, he thought he made that shot when he hit it, the way that it was releasing on the green and rolling towards the hole, taking the break. He thought that he made it. And for it to, to hit, to catch the lip, to spin out, he just – he was done. Like, he could not believe it. And um, Watson, he has his 15-footer for birdie to win the Masters or to, you know, essentially win if Zeller misses. And uh, Watson leaves it uncharacteristically short again. This is a guy who was known back in the day as one of the best putters in the world, and he always jammed everything in. If he didn't make it, it was four feet past. And for him to leave two putts short in a row – was just was undescribable for Tom Watson back in 1979. And um, so it's all up to Fuzzy Zeller. And he cashes his six-footer right in the back of the cup, throws his putter about 40 feet up in the air, and the broadcast doesn't – you never see the putter come down. He just tosses it up in the air and uh, gives Watson a hug and then puts his arm around Ed Sneed and says a couple words to him and – um, and Fuzzy Zeller's your 1979 Masters champion, and to this day, the last, the last uh, first-time competitor in the Masters to to win.
in the first uh, sudden death playoff. I didn't, I did not know that. Did you know who I blame in, in all this for poor Ed Sneed? <laughs> Who's that? Craig Stadler. I mean, he's out there probably, you know, shooting 78, moping around. I'm sure it, 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 Craig's negativity, you know, rolled off on him and uh, added to Ed's rough finish there. Well, I think it definitely, you know, messed with Ed a little. Um, and complete, I think, and complete speculation. I mean, the walrus. Yeah. <laughs> But we talked about this before too, where like it's so hard to play good golf when you're playing with somebody who's playing so badly or who's not in it. And, and that's not an excuse and that's not, you know, trying to save face for Ed Snead. But at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to be able to keep yourself in it when, you know, the guy you're playing with is, you know, kind of moping around or just, you know, kind of just hacking at it at, you know, by the end of the round and he's just not caring. And, yeah, I, that's I, definitely I think an element that people don't weigh when, in. I think when you're closing a tournament, especially, you know, and you think about uh, there's so many meltdowns where um, you're really just trying to stay in that positive frame of of reference and think about what you have to do versus what you can't not do. But when someone is showing you and you have to watch, you know, what's yeah. not, not to do, and and they're dumping them in the water, and they're, you know, it's hard. It just becomes more challenging. You gotta. It's just another layer of mental toughness that uh, the best guys have. Exactly. Yeah, that's why, you know, champions are champions. Ed Sneed. That's a good one. Not No relation to Sammy Sneed. No, anyway, no. It's a different spelling. S-N-E-E-D is how Ed spelled it. That Ohio State Buckeyes team was pretty loaded, too. Yes. Why they had some studs there. And they, yeah. there is, I've heard this from other people, too, that, like, it was, you know, they were teammates and supportive. But with Nicholas – in particular, they were all hyper competitive against Nicholas, um, just because you know it, it makes sense. He, he's the kid on the schoolyard that keeps beating you up every day. Of course, you're going to want to beat him at some point right, someday. Exactly. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, so moving into the '80s, what do you got? So moving into the '80s, we kind of have a theme. So now, a decade later, in 1989, um, and we have the first English winner and. Uh, the only English winner other than uh, Danny Willett and Nick Faldo, a three-time Masters champion. And this one is pretty uh, pretty tough to watch, um, especially if you're an American golf fan uh, and if you're a Greg Norman fan. So backtracking a little bit, um, Greg Norman, I kind of want to start here uh, just kind of in the middle of the fourth round. And – Greg Norman, he makes five birdies on the back nine. And this is, you have to remember, this is Greg Norman at his peak. Uh, 1986, he bogeyed the 72nd hole to miss out on a playoff by one shot to Jack Nicholas. 1987, he was in a two-hole sudden death playoff with Larry Mize, and Larry Mize makes that 80-foot chip shot on the 11th uh, to put the dagger in. Greg's heart. So going into 1989, I mean, Greg had already had a lot of scar tissue in this tournament alone um, and in major championship history. I mean, you know, 1986 was the Norman Saturday slam. I mean, he was in the final group or sorry, the Norman Sunday slam. He was in the final group of uh, each major championship going into the final round and only won one of them, won the British open. And so going into 89, I mean, Norman, he was the number one player in the world. He was 
by far the favorite going into this week. And uh, Norman making the turn, I mean, on the second nine, he makes five birdies. Uh, he rattles off seven birdies for the day. Birdies 15, 16, and 17 to tie for the lead. And he goes to the 18th hole. He hits the middle of the fairway. He hits a six iron, just fins it about head high. Never really had a chance of making it to the green. Um, but he's still, to that Sunday pin location, kind of front left over that bunker, he's okay. It's a pretty simple chip shot. It's pretty simple up and down. And he hits a very indifferent chip, misses the par putt, his 10-footer, and, and makes bogey and finishes at four under par. And, you know, he's a leader in the clubhouse. Feels like he still has a good chance of, you know, forcing a playoff. But, you know, that that bogey is going gonna, is gonna to really sting. And a couple groups back. Uh, sorry. So ahead of that, Nick Faldo, who started the day, he was uh, – he started the day five shots back of the leaders of Scott Hoke and Ben Crenshaw. And Faldo makes kind of his own birdie barrage. Uh, he makes four birdies on the back nine that day. He shoots a final round, seven under 65. And, you know, for somebody, he ends up finishing the tournament at five under par. Uh, you know, somebody who was two over par for the tournament after 54 holes, he, he was in nobody's mindset to, to win this golf tournament. And to finish off, you know, a stellar round like that, I mean, it's, it's unheard of, really. I mean, in a major championship setting to go and, and win your second major championship in your first, in your first Masters. Well, the, group, the final pairing of Scott Hoke and Ben Crenshaw, uh, they, they go to the 17th hole. Crenshaw hits his approach shot to about 40 feet, and Scott Hoke flames his tee shot on 17 about almost into 15 fairway. Uh, 17, the 17th hole and the 15th hole at Augusta National are, are right next to each other. They run uh, side by side. And so Hoke is basically in the middle of the fairway on 15, hits what he thinks is flags his second shot to that front right pin location on 17, and he airmails the green by about 40 yards. So now he's, he's dead of dead. And Tom Weiskopf, who's on the broadcast for CBS, uh, Jim Nance, Ken Venturi, Venturi and Weisskopf are going back and forth, and they're both saying that he, Scott Hoke is dead. He is dead of dead. There is there is no chance that he will be able to get this up and down. I mean, he's got he's got no opportunity. I mean, the best he can do is hit it to twenty feet and try to save par that way. Well, Hoke hoods a little pitching wedge, hits it into the bank. Ball pops up. Rolls out, catches the lip, spins out of the hole, and releases about four feet past. I mean, and Venturi chalks it up right away and says, "Hey, I that was one of the best shots I've ever seen hit on this golf course." And he said, "I that was you know inexplicable. I don't know how he did it." And you know, Hoke, you can tell. I mean, he the he's oozing confidence. I mean, you can tell that he is after that shot. He pulls that shot off off of. That whole day on Sunday, the, the rain was just pouring all day long. Everybody's in 
rain suits. You can hear on the broadcast when guys are walking down the fairways, the water splashing up against their slacks and their shoes. I mean, it, it, it's just a soaked day. So on top of all that, to, to have a lie that he's, that's a thin, wet lie, to be able to pick the ball off perfectly, to able to hit it into the mound, kill it with speed, and then have it roll out. I mean, it, it was one of the better shots, one of the better short game shots, definitely around Augusta. The only reason it's not the best is if, because it didn't go in. And Andy eventually didn't win the golf tournament. But so Ben Crenshaw, he's sitting at 400 par. He had just birdied 16 to get to that number. And uh, essentially he needs to, you know, looking at Hoke, figuring that he's going to make par and stay at 600 par. Crenshaw's assuming that he's going to have to go birdie birdie to have a chance of tying Hoke and enforcing a playoff. And so, you know, Ben Crenshaw, one of the greatest putters in the history of the game, he's got about a 40 footer left of the hole uh, on 17. He takes a little while to line it up. Uh, he's looking at it from a different couple different angles. And as soon as he strokes it, you can tell he, he looks up and he knows his eyes start getting wider and wider, like a, how good of a putty hit. And he, you know, he's thinking to himself, it, it's tracking. And he kind of raises his putter up and the ball starts to dive at the last second to his left. And it catches the lip and it does kind of a 180 and falls in the front of the hole. And he, in Crenshaw, I've never seen him show that much emotion in my life. He throws his hands up in the air. He keeps kind of shaking them right next to his head at his caddy. He keeps saying, you know, come on, the crowd's going crazy. I mean, he is jacked up. He just got to five under. And I think that putt spooked Scott Hoke. Uh, I really do. He, all of a sudden, they pan to him. He's lining up his putt. He looks like a different person than five minutes ago when he hit one of the best chip shots of his life. And I think he wasn't, obviously, you're not really expecting Crenshaw to make a putt like that, not on the 71st hole of the Masters. And for, for Crenshaw to pour it in the heart, or not pour it in the heart, but to, to make the putt, for everybody to go crazy, I think the moment all of a sudden got too big for him. And Hoke just, he just never looked comfortable going through his routine. And he kind of hits it way too quickly. I mean, it was all of a sudden they pay into Hoke. He quickly kind of takes a practice swing and he gets up and he goes. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, Crenshaw just finished 20 seconds ago, not even. And he gets up and he just hits it and doesn't even hit the hole, just completely whiffs on the putt. And so he makes bogey. So now Hope tie is tied for the lead with Crenshaw and Faldo, who's in the clubhouse at 500 par. And uh, Crenshaw and Hoke, they both hit the middle of the fairway uh, with their shots on 18. And something that's pretty – inexplicable to me. Um, Tom Weisskopf and Ken Venturi are on the broadcast for CBS and, and Venturi, Venturi makes this prediction that is just absurd. And Weisskopf starts the conversation by saying that he believes that uh, the tournament will not go to a playoff. One of these two players will make birdie here and, and win it outright. And Venturi goes, I, can, I can't agree with you more, Tom. He goes, one of these two players will make a birdie. And then he goes, and I know who it's going to be, but I'm not going to say who it is, but I know it's who it's going to be. And it's going to be the right guy. 
That's what he says. And it's like, <laughs> what? what the hell did you just say? Like, I, I was watching it the other day and I'm like, did he just say that on air? Like, how does the producer, Frank Cherkinian, let him get away with that? You know, it's like, well, why would you ever say something like that? They're like, why are you acting like, you know, like he, like he's playing God. Like I'm, I'm able to control <laughs> who's going to make birdie and I'm going to have the guy who I want to have make birdie, make birdie to win. He, I mean, he sounded ridiculous. And it, it, it kind of got like, it was kind of awkward because nobody, after Venturi says that, nobody said anything on the broadcast for like two minutes. <laughs> I mean, there were no words <laughs> like, uttered oh, after that. We, yeah, we know who the old like, man's room for. Yeah, you know who everybody, you know, everybody was kind of looking at each other on that broadcast like, what the hell did he just say? And and so, anyway, so they both get to the, their balls on 18 and Crenshaw just completely duck hook lays the sod over his second shot goes into the front left bunker and he's dead. I mean, he's short-sided to that front left pin location. Um, Green's running completely away from you. The only kind of bail that he has is if he can play it up against up and let it stop on the slope behind the pin and then have it trickle down. That's his only play, but he's on the down slope. It's wet sand. I mean, all the elements are against him. And Scott Hoke plays the correct second shot on that hole on 18. He hits it right in the spot that Marco Mira in 1998 hits it. He's got a 20-footer just right of the pin, um, you know, breaks a little right to left, and that's the putt that all right-handers want. They want a right-to-left putt. Right-handers hate left-to-righters. And so he's essentially got a perfect putt to try to win the Masters. Crenshaw hits his bunker shot, plays a pretty decent shot to about 10 feet. And so he's got par. If, if Scott Hoke misses, Crenshaw needs to make that putt to force a playoff or to get into the playoff with Faldo and Hoke. Um, Hoke looks a little more settled over his birdie attempt on 18 to win the Masters. Um, and when he strikes it, the camera starts following the ball, and it, it's tracking. I mean, it, it's got speed. It looks like it's going in the heart. And at the last second, it just kind of starts losing a little gas and just peels off to the left. And Hoke, he just makes this rea- – he kind of makes the same reaction that Ed Sneed made in 1979. He kind of – he walks kind of back towards the fairway. His hands – he kind of put his hands up once the ball reached the hole, and then he puts them back down. His head's down. I mean, his body language was just not looking good. And – uh, he just looked dejected. He just looked like he should have, you know, going through his head, I should have won this tournament outright. I should have made that putt on 17, and, and I shouldn't have even, even have had to make uh, the putt I just hit to win it. You know, I, should, I shouldn't be going to a playoff right now. Um, and then a little time elapses because Crenshaw takes about five minutes to hit his par putt to get into the playoff. And as soon as Crenshaw – as soon as the ball leaves his blade, he starts walking after the ball. It had no chance. He, he pushed it, and the ball was uh, way to the right of the hole. So Faldo and uh, Hoke go to the sudden death playoff on 10. And it's funny because Hoke is the guy who's in good spirits. Hoke reached the 10th tee first. He's waiting for Faldo, and, and the camera's standing right there. And you can hear Hoke very clearly say to Faldo as he approaches him, Hey, great playing, man. Um, you know, good luck to you in the playoff. You know, it was great, great round. Uh, you know, congratulations on your great play today. And I was like, wow, like that's, that's pretty impressive for him to, you know, here's Scott Hoke who just 
just bogeyed the 71st hole of the Masters from four feet. And he just missed a 20-footer that he thought he made on 18 to win the Masters. And that he's remembers to, you know, remembers, hey, you know, Nick Faldo shot 65 today to tie me to get into the playoff. You know, that was pretty impressive. I thought that was, you know, great sportsmanship. And I, I honestly thought it showed that Hoke was the one who was more relaxed. Because when Faldo, when they show Faldo, he looks kind of dissembled. I mean, he, or disheveled. He was waiting around for an hour and a half. Uh, you know, he finished way ahead of the leaders. Um, he had to sit around in the clubhouse all day. It was raining, so he probably wasn't practicing that much. When he shows up to the 10th tee, his, his hair's a mess. He wasn't wearing a hat. His, he's, on, he's in a rain suit, but he's taking it off while he's walking up to the 10th tee. So he's kind of like got one arm in the jacket, one arm out of the jacket as he's shaking Hoke's hand. And then he's, he's taking his rain pants off. He just looks like he's not prepared. He just looks like a, you know, he looks like the kid who's trying to catch his school bus who's trying to put all his book bags and his lunch in his backpack and he's running after the bus. And Fowler, he just doesn't look ready to, to play in the sudden death playoff of the Masters. And, of course, he draws the honors. And so he gets up in the first – or, sorry, on the 10th tee, and he, he kind of hits an indifferent tee shot down the middle of the fairway but stays up on the top of the hill. So he's got 215, 220 into this – for a second shot into the 10th hole. And Scott Hoke just – Hits an, ass, hits an absolute laser tee shot right down the left side of the fairway. He catches that speed slot, races all the way down. He's got 175, 170 yards in. So, I mean, clearly the advantage is to Hoke. Follow on the second shot, he kind of whiffs a three iron, it looks like, and just ends up in the right kind of greenside bunker about level with the pin. And Hoke hits his second shot about 30 feet below the hole to that back left pin location on 10. So I'm the hope clearly has the advantage still uh, walking to the green. Faldo hits his bunker shot to about 15 feet below the hole. And uh, Hoke hits his first putt, his birdie attempt about 18 inches, just right of uh, the right of the cup. So, I mean, he's essentially Hoke's got a tap in to win the masters. And Faldo, he lines up his par putt, never really had a chance, misses it low and left. And, and that hole, that green breaks a lot more than people think. And it looks, the camera doesn't really do it justice. TV doesn't do it justice because the camera, the stationary camera behind the green makes it look pretty flat. That green breaks hard right to left pretty much on any spot. Um, you know, when you're in the fairway looking at the green, it's, it is a hard right to left green. I mean, everything slopes kind of back to the front and left. And so Faldo's putt rolls by about four or five feet, makes the comebacker for bogey. And so now Scott Hoke has an 18-incher to win the Masters. And he takes a minute and 42 seconds to hit this putt. He looks from it. He starts from looking at it from behind the ball. Then he goes to the right side of the ball. He kind of bends down, looks at it. Then he goes behind the hole, looks at it that way. Then he goes to the left side, looks at it. Then he goes all the way around the hole again, back to his ball. He doesn't go straight to the ball. He goes all, he retraces his steps and goes back, uh, retraces his steps back to the ball. 
And now he crashes behind the ball again, looks at it. And then he gets over the putt. And this is a guy, if you've watched him the whole day, you watched him the last two holes on 17 and 18, he's, he's had no routine. 17, he got up and hit the ball as quickly as possible, like he didn't even want to hit the putt. He just wanted to get it over with. 18, he took, you know, normal amount of time, the normal amount of time that he probably usually took. And then 18, he takes an excessive amount, amount of time. I mean, he just looked like he did not want to hit these putts, um, with the exception of the 18th hole. He, he just wanted these to – 17, it was almost like – 17, he wanted to get it over with, where the playoff hole, he remembered, oh, man, I you know, 17, I hit that thing so quickly, I, I should take my time here. You know, it, it, you could tell it was almost like that was running through his mind. Like, don't do what you did on 17. Don't get up and hit it. You know, you got you to gotta look at it, pay attention. And the thing is, is, I mean, the putt on 17, he had four feet. Those are putts that, you know, I mean, every once in a while you miss. 18-incher, I don't care if it's straight downhill, you know, and the green is breaking so hard from left to right, it's hey, step up and fall roll. off if you're – yeah, yeah, just hit the putt. And he, he hits it so hard, it doesn't even touch the hole. Misses it left, high side, and he's got five feet for bogey to, to now stay in the playoff. And they, it's great because CBS had the picture in picture. They had the full picture of Scott Hoke, but they had a top right corner picture with the camera focused on Nick Faldo. And right as Hoke's over the putt, Faldo's face is kind of, you know, he can just tell he, he's just down, his arms are folded. And he just, you know, he's just waiting for Hoke to make it and to shake his hand and say congratulations. And as soon as Hoke hits the putt, Fowler's eyes widen and he kind of shrugs his shoulders back and shrugs his arms and he kind of refolds his arms and he's got a whole new different posture. He almost has a smirk on his face like, oh my God, I'm going to win the Masters because this guy's going to four putt. And Hoke ends up making the five footer to stay in the playoff. They go to 11. And now, you know, Scott's got – he's got no chance. I mean, they both hit the fairway on 11. Uh, Faldo hits his second shot to about 40 feet. Hope flames his second shot way right of the green. I mean, almost like kind of towards the walkway – or not the walkway, but towards like the direction you'd walk to, to, uh, to 12th tee. And Hope kind of hits an indifferent chip to about eight feet. And Faldo rolls in his 40-footer for birdie and, and wins the golf tournament. And it, it's just amazing because everybody – I feel like people just forget about that tournament. Like Scott Hoke, you know, and Nick Faldo, I mean, 1989, he wins the Masters. 1990, he wins the Masters on the 11th hole in a sudden death playoff again over a 49-year-old Raymond Floyd. And – and then he wins in 1996 and father, I'm not taking anything away from him. I mean, you know, he's one of three players, one of three players to win the green jacket three times. I mean, the other two players are Gary player and, and, uh, Sam, or sorry. Uh, one of four players, I believe, uh, Gary player, Sam Snead and, um, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Demerit, and you know, follows one of the greatest players of all time, one of the greatest major champions of all time. He's a six-time major champion, but 
you know, he, he was, he was the benefactor of a lot of, uh, choking. I mean, Scott Hoke choked in 1989, Raymond Floyd hit his approach shot right into the pond on 11 and bogeyed two of his last three holes, uh, coming in on, in regulation to get into a playoff with Faldo. And then in 1996, you know, Faldo ends up, uh, overtaking Greg Norman who had a six shot lead going into that Sunday. So, I mean, you know, and no disrespect to Nick, he played great golf those days. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I think people almost more so remember you know, how he won those tournaments than what he actually shot. Yeah. Man, Scotty Hoke with the choke. It, did, it doesn't help that his name rhymed with it, but um, yeah. I, lo- I've, I think this is true. I didn't – Damon Green – I heard Scott was kind of difficult to to work for. Um, didn't Damon Green, uh, Zach Johnson's caddy, used to be with him, and he 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 fired Scott Hoke. I think oh, I, that could be true. Yeah, I think I remember hearing that 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 Damon Green was. I mean, Scott was winning. He was like a great loop to have, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm I'm done. I can't do this." All right, so uh, we're into the '90s. I am now alive. Uh, what? What'd you pick? Which one did you go with? I think I know. I am too. I think I'm only a year old, but, uh, so 1996, um, obviously, you know, we've talked about it a little bit already in this podcast, but Greg Norman going into the Sunday 54 hole leader, uh, the masters never won the masters before so many close calls up to that point. And, um, he has six shot lead. Looks like he's, you know, he's obviously going to win this tournament outright and going away. I mean, nobody, Nick Faldo, kind of his arch rival of that time uh, is in the final pairing with him, but you know, he's six shots back of him. Um, you know, nobody really thinks that Faldo has a chance. It looks like Norman's playing well enough to, uh, you know, to sustain his lead and to not, you know, finally not choke anything away. And uh, like he was known for, for so long. And, you know, Norman, he, you know, those first three days, he went 63, 69, 71 for a total of 13 under par. Um, and Faldo was six shots back of him at seven under. And, you know, the whole narrative up to that point, I mean, Greg Norman was a very well-established player up to that point. Um, number one player in the world for so long. And everybody just felt like it was his time. He was, he was so due to win this golf tournament. And, you know, the historical fact, too, you know, no, no, Australian, had ever, no Australian had ever won the Masters up to that point uh, in 1996. So to become the first Australian to win the tournament, it, it just everything, all the pressure was squarely on Norman's shoulders. And that night, you know, Norman had the, you know, the narrative and kind of the aura of being a choker and, you know, giving away tournaments on Sunday. And, uh Greg Norman had run into an old English writer by the name of Peter Dober, Dober Reiner. And um, Peter actually ended up passing away later that, uh, later that year, later in 96. But Peter ran into Greg and said, well, Greg, it was the good news is not even you can F this up tomorrow. And Norman kind of walked away from that exchange and was like, wow, that is just a very odd thing to say to somebody who's <laughs> in this position. And 
you know, to, to hear that story, I mean, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, it kind of, I guess it foreshadowed what we were leading into on Sunday. Um, and Norman, he did all of his press on Saturday night, uh, you know, talked to anybody who wanted an interview. And he was, he was the last player to leave the course that night. He went in the locker room and the locker room attendants had left. Uh, the lights were closed or the lights were turned off. Everything was kind of locked up. So Norman just kind of sat there in the dark by himself and tried to gather his thoughts for the next round. And that night on another side of the golf course, uh, one of the CBS announcers, Peter Costas was walking, you know, through the, through kind of the media lot going to his car. And one of the golf channel, TV guys kind of stopped him and said, you know, just said, Hey, what do you think about Greg's chances tomorrow? And Peter, assuming that it was completely off the record, uh, he had noticed that Greg earlier in the week had been experimenting, experimenting with a stronger left-handed grip. And he said each day from when he noticed that on Tuesday to Saturday afternoon, he noticed that his left hand kept getting weaker and weaker each day. And Peter being a swing coach on top of being a TV analyst, uh, he knew that, you know, for good players, grip changes are the hardest changes to make. And so for him to kind of lapse back into his old habits, he felt like it could be a really tough day for Norman on Sunday. And Norman had shot 100 par 71 on Saturday, but he, he scrambled his, you know, what off and, really kind of hit it all over the park. So Costas just kind of unassumingly thinking that he was off the record said to the reporter, Hey, you know, I think it could be a really long day for Greg. And this is the, here's why. And so he said that didn't think anything of it uh, going to bed that night, wakes up the next morning and gets a phone call from his CBS producer, Steve, uh, Steve Cherkinian and Cherkinian is just livid. I mean, yelling at Costas on the phone saying, you know, did you just tell the whole world that Greg Norman is going to lose the Masters? We, you know, what are you, what in the hell are you thinking? And you have to realize that Cherkinian and Norman were very close, very close friends. And so what happened is that Greg Norman woke up that Sunday morning, turned on the golf channel and saw that one of the reporters said that Peter Costas told him the night before that Greg Norman could be in for a long day. And so Greg steaming calls Cherkinian to tell him what happened. And so that tells you where, you know, Norman's frame of mind going into Sunday of the Masters. I mean, the guy's got a six shot lead and you're worried about what other people are talking or saying about you. I mean, you got to be focused on the task at hand. You can't be thinking about, you know, what's Peter Costas at CBS thinking about my golf game. And for Norman to, you know, to do those things to, culture Kenyan and to you know call Casas out I mean that's just it's just absurd it's just childish and it shows you why what exactly happened happened and so you know fast forward and going to the back nine on Sunday Norman went from a six-shot lead to start the day with a two-shot lead standing on the 10th hole and quickly uh you know that going to the 11th hole, it was a race to one shot. And I, I really think the, the, what went wrong for Norman that day on Sunday, um, you have to look at his stretch from nine to 12. He played those holes in plus five. 
he went bogey, 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 double. And on 11, he kind of makes indifferent bogeys on 9 and 10. I mean, on 9, everybody sees the second shot that spins off the front edge of the green and doesn't get up and down. And 10, he hits a terrible chip from the left side of the green. He runs it past 20 feet, makes bogey. 11, he hits two great shots. He hits his second shot to about 10 feet and a three putts from 10 feet. And from then on, he took almost two minutes to walk to the 12th tee because he just was taking so much time. He didn't, he didn't know what to do. He was just in shock. Standing on the 12th hole, he's now tied for the lead with Nick Faldo. And Nick really, he didn't really do anything spectacular up to the 12th hole. I mean, he, he was just making a lot of pars, just kind of hanging in there and, and forcing, you know, kind of not even really forcing Norman, just letting Norman kind of do what he does and get into a train wreck. Um, you know, going to the 12th hole, I mean, Fowler was only, he was only two under par. So, I mean, it wasn't like he was lighting the course on fire. It was just that Greg was just collapsing. And standing on the 12th hole, Greg ends up hitting his tee shot into the, uh, to the pond, which obviously, you know, it's just a massive mistake. And Faldo hits the center of the green. He makes par. Greg makes double. And from then on, I mean, it was just an onslaught. And Faldo ends up shooting 67, five under par on Sunday, which ended up being the lowest score on the weekend uh, on that in the 96 Masters. And Norman ends up shooting six over par 78. And Faldo ends up winning the tournament by five shots. And, you know, I mean, this is this is a tournament that everybody knows about. It's been very well documented in the history of golf. And, and it's just every time I, I watch it or watch highlights of it or read about it, it just amazes me, you know, how this happened. And I think what's even more pretty, you know, evident or pretty remarkable is that the very next year, Tiger Woods ends up winning the same golf tournament by 12 shots. So it's kind of – compares the two players because you know going into Tiger's professional career uh Greg and Tiger Woods both worked with the swing coach uh Butch Harmon and a lot of people were kind of comparing their golf swings and comparing their talent together and you know Greg at that point was the best player in the world a lot of people were you know comparing the two players and you know if you want to know the difference between Tiger Woods and Greg Norman just you know look at the difference between 1996 and 1997 Probably the on your list, I'd imagine this one's the most documented because it was the um, largest collapse. Uh, but it's, you know, I think, man, it's it's just um, I didn't know about the grip change. I didn't know that was a thing he was dealing with, and um, I did remember hearing that it was like a personal issue too that he just wouldn't get off his chest. Uh, yeah, and so and it, Greg it, talked about that. Uh, a couple years ago on a golf digest article and said that because um, Butch Harmon had always talked about, like he knew that something was up with him on the car ride going to the golf course that day. Uh, but he never asked Greg about it. And to this day, I don't think Butch has ever asked Greg what happened uh, that morning, but Greg did uh, acknowledge the fact that there was a personal issue, a family matter that, uh, occurred that morning and um but you know norman never you know has talked about what it specifically was he just said that it was it was something that he couldn't get out of his mind all day long it was something that affected him all day and 
and it was something that he just really couldn't get off his chest. There's there's a lesson in here somewhere because Greg Norman, you know, still regarded as the guy that struggled on Sundays. Um, I mean, he he was always there too, you know, and and also a exceptionally successful dude in uh, business and life. And I yeah. actually always kind of, I know we're talking about a lot of these misses and uh, failures, but the failure is, you know, one of the the keys is that you have to fail all, all these times in order to get over the hump. And, you know, maybe he didn't really get over the hump uh, in the same way that Nicholas or Tiger did, but this dude, this dude failed with the best of them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. When he went down, he went down in a blaze of glory. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So let's carry on into uh, the two thousands. So what you got? So, 2000s is more of kind of a culmination of a lot of different tournaments. It's not really a choke specifically, but I just wanted to touch upon David Duvall. Um, going into the 2001 Masters, I mean, everybody was talking about the Tiger Slam and how Tiger Woods could win four Masters in a row. Or, sorry, not four Masters, four major championships in a row, which had you know never been done before in the history of golf. I mean, Bobby Jones who was the founder of Augusta National. He won, you know, the four major championships of his time, but they weren't the four professional majors that we know today. And Tiger had a chance to, even though it wasn't in the same calendar year, he had a chance to win four major championships in a row. And so everybody was talking, all the media attention was on Tiger Woods. And can he achieve this remarkable feat, achieve it at the, tournament and the golf course that Bobby Jones built really from the ground up. And nobody was talking about David Duvall. David Duvall at that time, he was the number two ranked player in the world. And here's a guy who the last three years, 1998, he finished in a tie for second, missed the playoff by one shot. 1999, he finished sixth, but he was only three back of the lead. And then in 2000, he was in the final pairing, uh, with Vijay Singh and ended up finishing third. So, I mean, this was a guy that, you know, he had going to the back nine on Sunday, the last three years in, in the masters, he had a legitimate chance to win the golf tournament and he really could have won the masters three years in a row leading up to 2001. And again, on Sunday, starting on Sunday, Tiger Woods had a one shot lead over Phil Mickelson and Duvall was in the group ahead of them or a couple groups ahead of them. And Duvall just comes out blitzing. I mean, he makes six birdies on the front nine. He makes two bogeys and a par. Then he goes to 10. He makes birdie on 10. He's five under par through 10 holes. I mean, it looks like David, he's just, I mean, he's just making a mockery of the golf course. He, it just looks like it's going to be his day. I mean, he, he looks like, you know, he's making putts from everywhere. He's hitting iron shots to two feet. I mean, these are one of these heaters that, you know, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, people were accustomed to seeing from David Duvall. That he, this was a guy that when he got it on a, when he got on a run, his good was almost as good as Tiger Woods. It wasn't level with him, but it was right there with him. Or not, sorry, it was right behind him. I mean, it was pretty, pretty damn close. And Duvall kind of had another gear that Tiger really didn't. Tiger was more of the game manager, just never made mistakes. Duvall could go out and make 
seven, eight, nine birdies like it was his job. And so that's what he does today. He birdies 10. He makes all pars from 11 to 14. He birdies 15. He comes to 16. And an interesting kind of note about 16, I remember Bones McKay, the longtime caddy for Phil Mickelson, he talks about how he believes there is a secret formula to the 16th hole. And he believes that for some reason, uh, throughout the history of the tournament, he always watches guys, especially on Sunday with adrenaline, they go long and they all hit these shots that they stare down and they think is perfect. And then they end up over the green and over the green on 16 is dead. I mean, you are dead of dead. You are not, unless you make a 10 footer for par, you're not getting up and down. And so Bones always watched this and realized that it must be an adrenaline factor or, you know, maybe it's just being, you know, when you're on 16, you're kind of, you're below the 15th hole. He said he, he's just came up with a lot of different factors for why, you know, guys could airmail the green. And inevitably, David Duvall, he has 185 yards. He takes seven iron. And to this day, David said it was the best feeling golf shot he ever hit. I mean, he said it was the most pure iron shot he's ever hit in his life. It was, and it never left the flag. I mean, and, and David was a guy who never showed emotion anyway, but you can watch his eye, kind of his head bob up and down watching the ball just never leave the flag. He knows that it's just right on it. And he airmails the green. I mean, doesn't even, he flies, it doesn't even catch a piece of the green, flies it into the back uh, second cut and got a straight downhill chip, chips it to eight feet and misses his putt for par. Um, and then you know, he's, so now he's one shot back going to, he pars at 17, goes to the 18th hole, splits the fairway, hits a wedge to about four feet. And Ken Venturi doing the broadcast with Jim Nance up in the tower, Venturi's basically now giving the tournament to Duval. I mean, he, he's like, oh, David's going to make this putt. He's going to force a playoff with Tiger Woods. I mean, this is – Tiger's walking to the 17th tee, and Venturi's already spewing all this, you know, this fortune that he thinks is going to happen. And Duval gets up and doesn't even hit the hole with his birdie putt. And Venturi is just, like, incredulous about it. He, it's like somebody spat in his face. He was like, oh, my God, David, how did you do that? How I just can't believe he missed that. I would have bet anything he would have made that putt. And you can tell Nance, like, probably shot him a look like, you know, calm down. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? And Venturi just – he goes on for a minute about how he just truly believed Duval make this putt and – it was just, it's just funny to listen to these old broadcasts with Venturi, but Duvall, you know, obviously he misses the putt and Tiger ends up having a one shot lead going to 18 and hits a wedge to 10 feet and makes it for a two shot victory over David Duvall. But I, I just have always felt like David, two months later, you know, David ends up winning the major championship that always eluded him and he wins the British open. Uh, and after that, he never won another golf tournament again. And, you know, he was a 13, 13-time winner on the PGA Tour, uh, British Open champion, shot 59, um, you know, in the final, final round of the Bob Hope to win by a shot. I mean, he, you know, he did all these fantastic things uh, in the game of golf in such a quick amount of time. I mean, at that, at that time, in 2001, David Duvall is 29 years old. And what's kind of sad is that Bobby Clampett, who was on the CBS broadcast, he was, he was assigned to the 11th hole. And after David Duvall made 
his birdie on the 10th. He was on the, he was walking to the 10th tee and Bobby Clampett said, or walking to the 11th tee and Bobby Clampett said, uh, I can't wait for the future of golf. It's in such great hands. You have Phil Mickelson, who's 30. David Duvall is 29. Tiger Woods is 25. These three players are going to carry the game, and they're going to be in so many more battles. This is the first of many. And it, it just never happened again. Yeah, um, he, he did. It just, it's he just sad to list. see. No, and it's sad to, it's sad to watch or he, sad to have watched. Yeah, when he was good, he was so good. Oh, he was. And – like you said, one of the few guys that Tiger actually concerned himself with if he oh, was in the Yeah. Hunt. I mean, Tiger has always said that really the two guys he worried about were Vijay Singh and David Duvall. Those were the two guys he knew that they weren't going to beat themselves mentally. If he was going to beat them, he had to go out and play his best because he knew that they were going to give a, give their best to him. And Tiger's a guy who, you know, he, he respects you if you give him your best. Look at Bob May in the 2000 PGA Championship at Valhalla. I mean – you know, Tiger has nothing but fantastic things to say about that day. Look at the 1996 U.S. Amateur that he played with Steve Scott. Nothing but fantastic things to say about Steve Scott. I mean, the guys who, you know, you may not have heard of, but guys who played great against Tiger Woods, Y.E. Yang, who defeated him in the 2009 PGA Championship. Tiger loves that. He loves competition. And if you give him your best, he respects you. He doesn't, you know, he – guys you know who choke and stuff he he just expects that but when you give him your best he he loves it because he loves that challenge he wants that yeah he remembers it he remembers that what i always remember about david duvall that made him because he was so emotionless a lot of the times you know had the shades on head down and uh he was good i mean this is like my heyday of junior golf at this time but i i always love that at some point in a round david duvall was going to have his shirt untucked and I always loved that because as a kid, I was skinny as a rail and I always struggled to keep my shirt tucked in. You know, I, I didn't want to be disrespectful, but people were always telling me, hey, tuck your shirt in. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know it was untucked. But I always thought David Duvall, very relatable in that. His shirt was always untucked. Always untucked. It was pretty funny, but that was his whole aura, right? I mean, he, <laughs> he had the sunglasses on. You couldn't see his face. He had the tobacco in his teeth and, and he just always, you know, he like you'd make a he'd make a birdie putt or something. He wouldn't wave to you. He wasn't doing the, the fist pumps like tiger. He just, you know, went out and shot 65 and, and kick your ass, you know, and he, and that's what he, he loved that. Cause he went through so many difficult times in his life. He had such a tough upbringing and went through so many just terrible things that kids should never go through. I mean, his brother was dying of cancer and David had to give his older brother his own bone marrow to try to save him at the last-minute uh, decision to save his older brother's life. And, and his older brother ended up passing away a couple months after. And David just never forgave himself for that. He always felt like he had something to do with it, which is just absurd. But that's the way that, you know, kids think. And so that was something that, you know, really shaped David for the rest of his life. And I enjoy him on the Golf Channel now as a, He's a great. color commentator guy. I mean, I think it's funny, you know, we talk about these – Venturi and Clampett and the things they say, you know, it's it, for the masters in particular, it's just etched into our minds. And I know Duvall's not on the, um, he's not on the uh, CBS telecast, but you know, if you're doing the post games and you're listening to what he has to say, uh, I, I tend to listen a little bit more than some of the others because of moments like this, you know, 2001 right. and things like that. And he's been there. He's done in his career. Yeah. So bringing us to 
I think our last decade before we get to this year, 2020. Um, who do you got? 2011. I think that's a year that a lot of people remember for a lot of reasons. I mean, at that, in that tournament, there were eight different lead changes on that Sunday. Um, you know, eight different guys had, had a share of the lead or led the tournament by themselves at one point during that Sunday. And, but going into that uh, 54-hole lead, Rory McIlroy had a four-shot lead going into that Sunday and was paired with a uh, 2009 champion, Angel Cabrera. And Rory was 21 years old at that time. Um, he had had one PGA Tour victory, but everybody kind of knew in the world of golf who Rory McIlroy was. He was kind of the next whiz kid. He was the next up-and-coming superstar. And, uh, you know, curly-headed, you know, short, funny-talking kid from Northern Ireland, but hit the ball a country mile and, you know, just the swing that everybody dreams of having. And he just looked like the guy that was going to take over the golf course, kind of take over the golf world and kind of do what Tiger Woods had done in 1997 and, you know, have this 21 year old winner who you know, kind of takes everything by storm. And Rory just from when they opened the broadcast in 2011, they pan to Rory in the parking lot and he's the first uh, picture they show is Rory getting his shoes out of his trunk. And when they show him, he just doesn't look comfortable. His, his shirt's untucked. You, you could say he looked relaxed, but his face, he's walking with a couple of his buddies. His parents weren't there that week. So he was, he was alone just running a house in Augusta. He just didn't look comfortable. Uh, and from the word go, I mean, he was, he was fighting his swing the entire front nine just was hitting shots that were just uncharacteristic. I mean, this is a guy that's been a great driver of the golf ball his entire life. And he just never seemed like he could get settled. And, you know, went to the 10th hole and he still had a one shot lead. I mean, he had, he had missed about a 10 footer for uh, birdie on nine, but you know, other guys behind him were playing great. I mean, Rory was just, he was just kind of hanging in there. He was one over par, but he, it didn't look like he was choking yet. And, um, you know, I talked about that kind of nine to 12 hole or ninth hole to the 12th hole stretch for Greg Norman, how he played in plus five. Well, Rory kind of had a similar thing happen to him in 2011. Uh, from holes 10 to 12, Rory played those holes in plus six. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before, but that 10th hole is what really kind of started Rory's downfall that day. And Rory hit driver off the 10th tee and, just hit an ugly snap hook that went, you know, 65 yards left of the fairway and, and near the cabins up on the hill, uh, kind of overlooking the 10th fairway. And as soon as Rory is walking off the tee, you can hear in the broadcast him turning around to the official and saying, is that out of bounds? Like, do I have to hit a provision? And the official's like, no, you're good. Like, yeah, that's fine. And and Rory's, you know, you can tell he's like, that is clearly not the golf course. Like, I, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I think he almost wanted to hit a provisional just to, to hit another tee shot. But he goes up there, he pitches out. And what I think he, the biggest mistake he made was he tried to hit the green. He, he had 270 yards. He tried to hit a three wood. And he did the same thing with the three wood that he did with his driver. And he duck hooked it way left to the green, about 40 yards, ends up hitting a tree. And he ends up taking a seven, a triple bogey. And, and Rory, then he goes to 11 and he three putts 11 from 10 feet. And then he four putts 12. And he ends up shooting 80 for the day. 
and, uh, you know, is completely out of it. And Charles Schwartzel, uh, kind of really a no-name South African, 26-year-old South African, ended up birdieing the last four holes and kind of stealing away this Masters that uh, the likes of Adam Scott, Tiger Woods, Jason Day, uh, Jeff Ogilvy all had a share of the lead at one point. I think I'm recalling from last year's most memorable winners, uh, Charles Schwartzel actually being on this list. And um, yeah, Rory, clearly the most tragic aspect of that afternoon. Uh, but what a, that's one of my favorites to rewatch. 2011 was just action packed. Well, and I think what's great too about Rory is that, you know, so he collapses that day and shoots 80 and, Two months later, he goes to Congressional at the U.S. Open, and he wins by eight shots. That's right. He sets, the, he sets the scoring record, and he just looks like a different kid. And I remember David Faraday telling a story that he, uh, you know, Faraday, another Northern Irishman, or sorry, Irishman, he knew, he had known Rory McIlroy since he was a kid. And he went over to the house that Rory was renting in Augusta Sunday night. To kind of just check on him, as you know, he looked at him. He goes, "Hey, are you are you okay?" And he's like, "You, you know, this today was a tough day, you know." And and Rory kind of looked at him. He goes, "Hey," he goes, "If this is the worst thing that's going to ever happen in my life, I'll be all right." And I think Faraday was like, "That told me everything I needed to know about Rory McIlroy." I mean, to be able at 21 years old, most 21 year olds would be devastated if that happened to them. And he was able to kind of, you know, he was disappointed and obviously wanted to win more than anything but at the end of the day he was like hey it's golf that happens and and i'll be back yeah his his outlook on life is definitely uh better than some for sure it seems like yes the balance is there well that's uh those are all some darn good near misses um i think uh going to 2020 i mean i, I would love to hear your selections um yeah for who you think is well, going to perform well this week. Well, so obviously, you know, as we finish with Rory, I mean, he's never, that's the only major championship that he has left on his resume that he has not won yet to complete the career grand slam and, and join the you know, list of Hogan, Woods, Nicholas, uh, Hagen, and player. Jesus, yeah. that was yeah. I, that was, <laughs> well, it's a lot of information you already have yeah. covered. Um, yeah, I I think so. Is that who you're picking? Uh, no. So I I I believe that Bryson DeChambeau is going to win. Uh, I think that he's what he did at Wingfoot with people saying that you know the U.S. Open is not going to work for him. The formula that he came up with to bulk up, gain 30, 35 pounds of muscle, and you know hit the ball as far as he can possibly hit it, you know, people are like, oh, that's not going to, that's not the formula to win us opens. And he proved everybody wrong in that, in uh, a couple of weeks ago at Wingfoot. So I, I believe the way this golf course, Augusta national rewards long drives more than really any golf course in the world. And if he can dial in his wedges and putt the way that he's been putting all year long, uh, I, I just don't see anybody being able to beat them. I, I think there are a couple guys, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson. I think those two guys can keep, kind of keep up with them off the tee and stay in the, you know, realm of, you know, 10, 15, 20 yards. 
um, and have enough wedges and short irons to compete with him. Um, but I just – the thing with Bryson is that he hits so far and he's such a good putter. And I, I think that's the most underrated part of his game is that he's, he's a top five putter in the world. And I, on top of hitting, you know, his tee shots, 330. And so I just don't see – I don't see this golf course uh, punishing him. And I, I just, I'd be shocked if he's not, I honestly would not, I would be shocked if he's not leading going into Sunday. I really would. Well, Vegas agrees with you. I think 17 to two odds. He's the the favorite going into the Houston open this week. Um, I think my pick to win is, well, here, let me ask you this. This, I wasn't planning on this, but we just did, you know, a podcast focused on the near misses of the Masters. Um, who would be if you had to pick someone to be <laughs> this tragic tale of Jeez. of collapse? That's a that's a weird question. But who who would you who would you go with? That's tough. I mean, you know, modern day you you'd pick Phil, right? Phil Mickelson. I mean, he'd be the guy. Well, He's you, you kind of have to pick but, someone who's going to be there too. Right. I'm just but, saying, but, hey, just, you, you know, you, history you, says history has always said, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, it'd be Phil Mickelson. But I, if I had to pick somebody, I'd honestly, I pick somebody that has happened to a couple times already in his career. And I, I, Dustin Johnson, I mean, you look at him and he, he could have made this list for other tournaments, right? I mean, he had a, yeah. he shot 80 in the final round or 81 in the final round of the 2010 U S open. Uh, the 2010 PGA Championship, he grounds his club in the bunker. 2011, he uh, at Royal St. George's, he on the, late in the day on the back nine, on a par five, he hits his second shot out of bounds. I mean, he he's done a lot. 2015, he three putts uh, on the 72nd hole of the U.S. Open from 10 feet and gives the tournament to Jordan Spieth. I mean, he's had a lot of things that have happened to him. Uh, in his career. I mean, even at the PGA championship this year, he had the 54 hole lead and he didn't close. I mean, he didn't yeah. choke, but he didn't close. And so I think, you know, he's a guy that I'd point to him, honestly, if he had the 54 hole lead, I wouldn't say that he's got it wrapped up by any. Yeah. That's, that's uh that's a good pick. That's a really good one. And then who's your, uh, your dark horse or your long, long odds. I think uh, 70 to one Phil Mickelson. Uh, hey, he's 50 years old. He's, I've never been a Phil fan. I'll be first to admit it, but I mean, uh, at 70 to one guys won there three times. Um, you know, obviously he's, he's playing decent golf in the fact that when he goes to the senior tour, he's, you know, winning everything when he plays on the regular tour, he's not playing well, but going to a golf course like that, I think that could maybe spark him and, and have a good finish. How about you? Okay. Well, for my overall winner, yeah, I've been picking Xander, I think, on every major we've done together. Um, yeah. And he's up there. I, I feel like he's a top 10 he machine in these things. But I want to go for a win, and I'm going to go with Rory McIlroy. Okay. Tied 8th at the U.S. Open. Uh, you know, had the kid. Um, maybe, that's, maybe that's just my, my mindset right now because we're <laughs> exactly. any day now. I have our first. But um, I think that 2020 just feels like a weird year. Uh, it would be... You know, it'd be a great story if Rory got the Masters win finally. Um, so I'm going to go with Rory. I think he was like 11 to one or something around there. Um, my my near miss pick. I haven't really thought about it, but I'm going to go with Dustin's a really good pick for that. Obviously, um, I can see John Rom. I feel like John Rom's just kind of mm. due to to be 
coasting to like looking really good. And, and I, you know, he's closed on the tournaments that he won this year with the, what, what the Memorial and, um, and then the BMW here in Chicago. But I could see, you know, a little master's meltdown. He hasn't really been in that big a moment uh, yet. And that would be entertaining as hell to watch. <laughs> as, yes. Is his personality. Especially with, exactly. Uh, so that could be fun. And then my long shot, I'm going to go, I think it's going to be a little chilly. It's going to be, I'm looking for a guy that's like Zach Johnson, 07. I'm going to go with uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick. Okay. Northwestern's pride. Uh, inside joke for some Chicago folks. He was there for like five weeks. Um, but Literally, Matthew, I think a semester. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that would be my, my dark horse. But I don't care, man. It's November and the Masters is going to be on TV. Uh, it's Life's good. What a way to end. I agree. End, hey, uh, and, you know, congratulations to you and your wife on, you know, the celebration of your first child. And I know you guys will be great parents, and I'm excited to hear the announcement any day now. So that'll be great. Thanks, and I'm man. excited for you guys. Yeah. Thanks. And that's why we got to knock this one out early, get it ready for the week. And uh, I was a master's baby. I was born on Thursday, the master's 1985. So I'm still holding out that the kid could be Thursday, the master's, but um, I think it'll be sooner, That'd which be a is pretty fine. cool bond to be able to, to say that you were born the only, the only November master's week I was born yeah. on that week. Right. Kind of, kind of cool. And, and hopefully we'll use it as an excuse to mom for us all to go to the masters every once in a while if that if uh, fortunes favor us but and hopefully that's the only november masters ever (laughs) yeah yeah let's not get too used to this let's hope that it shuts down well pj thanks for doing it man thanks for coming on sharing with us all your knowledge around these uh these events and and the history of them we we enjoy it thanks matt yeah i know it can get a little sluggish there but thanks for letting me come on and it's always fun to do this with you all good stuff thanks dude Take care. This episode was brought to you by Half Day CBD. Personally, I started using Half Day CBD products a little more than a year ago to assist in three key areas. I use the Half Day oils as part of my bedtime ritual. I like to use the Half Day topical relief creams for my knees, which always start to ache around this time in the golf season. And I use the Half Day CBD gummies as a way to curb some of my first tee jitters before an especially nervy match or tournament. Using the link in our show notes, you can now check out their full line of hemp-derived CBD products. And with the promo code NEWCLUB15, you'll receive an additional 15% off your first order. You'll also see some of the half-day staffers at our upcoming tournaments and events for the second half of the golf season. So if you're interested in the use of CBD products or just curious about the benefits for yourself, I encourage you to say hello and check them out.